Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sharp China. I'm Andrew Sharp and on the other line, Bill Bishop. Bill, how you doing? Good, Andrew. How are you? Hi, everybody. I'm good. I'm good. We've got a lot to get to today. Can I tell you one thing, though, before we get started? Okay. So literally, like right before we came on to record, you tweeted about the lack of translation on Twitter. And I was testing it out and it works on other people. But in my 90 second experiment before we came on to record here, I realized that the translate button is working for everyone else except you. So I don't know what's happening here, but it reminded me of the time last fall when Twitter wouldn't let you buy like a hundred dollar ad for Sharp China. We need to do the Twitter files. Oh my God. Am I being shadow banned? <laughs> Look, we might be uh, being this is a shadow banned. Yeah. I need to start tweeting in Mandarin to test the theory, yeah. but it and, remains and why, a possibility. Why is Twitter not letting us promote Sharp China? And why is it not? Anyway, I have no idea. Um, I think I think the simplest uh, explanation with anything that's happening with Twitter is that the infrastructure is just slowly eroding on a weekly basis here. And we're all just watching its gradual decline. But look, I'm open to conspiracy theories and it yes. cracked me up right before we came on. To no, record. I, I, I have no idea. I just saw I tweet. I tweeted from out in Chinese. And I know a lot of people you know, they don't read Chinese. And so they. So I started getting messages like, where's the, tra-? you know, because it used to have a reasonable, I think it was Google Translate. So it did an okay job. Mm-hmm. You just click on like translate the suite and in Chinese it would translate English. And like I said, it did an okay job. Not great, but um, most of the time it was basically okay. And just the last few days I've noticed from messaging people, it's, it's gone. Exactly. I rely on it when I'm reading your tweets and I hadn't realized that it was gone until you pointed it out. And I was like, oh God, that's right. Um, so, and it's also very funny that it's working for everyone else I follow in my China feed. But um, for now, <laughs> that cracked me up. And as usual, you can send questions to email at sharpchina.fm. We'd love to hear your Twitter theories, your contribution to the Twitter files. Or tweet at Elon Musk and ask him if we're somehow shadow <laughs> Yes. Please. If anyone has a line to Elon, uh, please pass along our questions and complaints. But look, we got a lot of good emails this week, a lot of good questions. I want to start with the news that arrived late last week. On the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion, the PRC released its 12-point plan for, quote, the settlement of the Ukraine crisis. That continues the PRC streak of never calling this a war. Um, I'm not going to read through each of the 12 points. I will say that they started with, number one, respecting the sovereignty of all countries, universally recognized international law, including the purposes and principles of the United Nations Charter, must be strictly observed. The sovereignty, independence, and territorial integrity of all countries must be effectively upheld. Um, That invites the obvious follow-up of whose sovereignty and territorial integrity must be effectively upheld. Did you have any general reactions to the plan itself? And then we've got a question. Uh, No, I mean, I think it was not surprising given all the previous statements out of the PRC government, not only from Xi Jinping, but, you know, folks like uh, Wang Yi and and then the foreign minister uh, and the foreign ministry 
Um, I can't resist. It dropped like a lead balloon in um, <laughs> the EU and the US. Um, the first premise about respecting sovereignty and yet, you know, a, a sovereign nation was invaded and they have yet to condemn Russia is is sort of. But, you know, the, the Ukraine um, President Zelensky had a press conference Friday on the first anniversary of the war. And um, I mean, he he's diplomatic and he welcomes trying to be constructive. He also said he he is planning on or wants to meet with Xi Jinping. I think I don't think when he said that on Friday, it was an indication that he actually a meeting is in the works. I think it was mm-hmm. more of his making a public expression of desire to talk with Xi Jinping and perhaps maybe trying to get the Chinese to move. Because um, for all this talk on the Chinese side, you know, Xi Jinping has had multiple conversations with Putin um, and has not spoken with Zelensky since the January of last year, the year before the month before um, Russia invaded. Right. And so, you know, again, I've said repeatedly, a lot of other people said repeatedly that if she were to actually have a conversation with Zelensky, then you might be able to say, OK, the Chinese are shifting a little bit on their sort of neutral, but really support Russia approach to this war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you pointed out on December 30th of last year, there was a video call between Putin and Xi. And the readout from the PRC side said that she told Putin, quote, China stands ready to join hands with Russia and all other progressive forces around the world who oppose hegemony and power politics. And as you wrote last week, she said this to Putin while Russia was launching indiscriminate missile attacks on civilian yeah, it's, infrastructure. It's pretty gross. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, what's the idea of a progressive force? And and there's never been any similar statement on Ukraine. I mean, the idea of a progressive force is anything that's anti-American and anti-NATO at this point, at least from the Russian perspective and increasingly, I think, from the PRC perspective. Yeah. I mean, that's become pretty clear. Uh, and Paul says, as far as this 12-point plan, talk is cheap, actions speak louder. And if China goes ahead and sells military drones to Russia, then this statement is worthless. Official statements like these are like an iceberg. You only see the top bit. What messages were conveyed to Putin ahead ahead of the release of this statement? What else is going on in the background? And to what extent was this statement given airtime inside China? As we all know, most of what is said officially is intended for the domestic audience. If the continuing narrative of, quote, it's all America's fault is not supported by this statement, then I suspect it will get little or no airtime inside China. What do you think of that, Bill? Do we have any indications as to how much airtime this is or isn't no, it, getting? I mean, it got it got coverage. It 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 is very much a effectively blames the U.S. and NATO. Again, it's it's there's no deviation from previous statements, and so mm-hmm. there's no controversy about what what was in here. And certainly since the release last Friday, I mean, we just continued the drumbeat about NATO bad, America bad, and you know the whole it's the U.S. effect, especially who is basically adding fuel to the fire with all the you know weapon sales. I think there have been both foreign ministry press conferences this week. There's been that theme has been brought up again. Um, and so again, there's no there's no shift. There was some some interesting sort of spinning being done to um, at least one foreign newspaper last week where anonymous sources were trying to talk about, oh, this is they're shifting. And, you know, she's not, you know, because she the, the expectation is she's going to go to Moscow in the next maybe the next few weeks to a couple months. And there was right. this, oh, well, He's not going to go if the Russians don't welcome this proposal, blah, blah, blah. And I mean, the Chinese side, the PRC side is learning what other governments have learned about the use of anonymous government officials and and how um, reporters are especially willing to listen to an anonymous PRC official because it's so rare that they talk. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so they're getting a bit more sophisticated. But again, I don't think that like there was it was an FT time, financial time story last week. I'm not convinced it's going to stand up well over the next couple of weeks or a couple of months. Well, speaking of anonymous government sources, the Wall Street Journal reported over the weekend that China is considering delivering artillery and drones to Russian forces that could prolong the war, even as Beijing called for peace talks to end the fighting on the first anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine. And they're citing U.S. officials throughout this piece. And it seems like there's been a steady drumbeat of leaks about assistance China might provide. What do you make of where things stand on that front? Because Jake Sullivan was on CNN this weekend talking about it. And it just seems like everyone is is providing like warning after warning that this might happen. So there was also a uh, an article in, in Der Spiegel, the German newspaper, I think last Thursday or last Friday, talking specifically about um, uh, uh, the potential for an order for um, armed drones. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, anonymous sourcing. So we don't know. We don't know what the intelligence is. Uh, it, it is. Uh, we talked about it last podcast. I mean, the, the U.S. especially has has been talking this up for push, coming on two weeks now. And best that I can pick up is that there is some intelligence that is seen as credible that this these sales are under consideration. I think it was uh, latest I've heard is artillery shells and then parts that will allow Russia to take commercial drones and basically turn them into weapons. Mm. And that they haven't it hasn't happened yet. And so the question is, you know, the U.S. has had, I think, pretty good intelligence about Russia for months now or over a year in terms of what they were doing. And so the question is, is did they pick up sort of requests from the Russian side? And, and so they're reading what they're listening to, what the Russians are saying and seeing that the response from the PRC side or PRC, again, it could be whether it's at the government level, it's at an individual company level, or are they seeing a, yeah, we'll think about it or here's what it would cost kind of, kind of conversation, or are they also in the loop on the Chinese side, which I think would be pretty surprising given some of the problems that the U.S. has had in getting good intelligence out of China. Right. That, that being said, this is all speculation. We don't know. I think what, you know, the President Biden said last week that, you know, he talked about it, said so, said so far, we haven't seen any indication they're going to do it. I think what the U.S. is trying to do is really get out there and say to the Chinese, look, if you do this, this is going to destroy the relationship. Yeah. And, and and so we really think you should think really hard about taking this step. And the same thing goes for some of the EU countries. I think it's going to be extremely difficult for even the Germans to try and have a constructive relationship with the PRC if 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 Beijing allows any of its companies to go forward and to deliver lethal assistance to Russia. Yeah, that's one of the aspects that I find unsettling, frankly. Like Jake Sullivan on CNN said Beijing will have to make its own decisions about how it proceeds whether it provides military assistance, but it will come at a real cost to China. And I think China's leaders are weighing that as they make their decisions. And there's been a lot of talk about what it could mean without ever really spelling out what the consequences actually would be. It's a lot of like, we're watching this very closely. This will come at a real cost. And I think that's a reflection of how dramatic an escalation it would be in terms of China's posture toward the West. Like, we don't even have that scenario on the board or haven't for uh, quite some time. And so I'm sure they don't want to box themselves in, but the general warnings are a sign of how serious it would be. It would be momentous. And on a whole bunch of levels, it it would be really bad if this happens. Um, And the fact also that the U.S. has been so out there warning 
means that if it does happen, then, you know, again, given the domestic political environment, in addition to these issues around the Ukraine war specifically, then it's it's going to be impossible for the Biden administration not to have a really serious response. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you have any other thoughts on the Ukraine war and, and the PRC involvement, or should we move to domestic news? No, I think at this point we can move on. I think really that the next things to watch are, again, whether or not Xi Jinping agrees to have any sort of a call with uh, you know, like a video call with President Zelensky from Ukraine mm-hmm. um, and whether or not we get any more confirmation or color around the possibility of a Xi Jinping visit to Russia, um, either at the end of March or in sometime into April. I mean, the next two and a half weeks in China, the preoccupied with what they call the two meetings, the, the National People's Congress and the Chinese People's Political Consultative Congress meetings, which start on Saturday, but hmm. get my dates right. Interesting. Okay. She is supposed to meet with Lukashenko at some point. This week? Right? Yeah. yeah, probably either today or tomorrow he's visiting, which is an interesting, again, given his closeness with Putin, it, it is an interesting, uh, this is the president of Belarus. What's going on there? It, it's not exactly clear, but it's, um, it's it doesn't signal from neutrality. Yes. <laughs> um, so we'll see. All right. So as far as the domestic side, I will read this report from the Global Times. They write, the general offices of the Communist Party of China, Central Committee and the State Council released a guideline on strengthening legal education and theory research in the new era, which requires law school teachers, students and relevant personnel to have a firm stand to oppose and resist Western, quote, constitutionalism and, quote, separation of three powers and other erroneous views. And then we got this question from Horace, who says, a friend who grew up in China but lives in the United States found a recent notice from the Chinese government to be very concerning. From her explanation, this article sees China walk back its commitment to several of its more, quote, Western ideas around the relationship between the government and the judiciary. And my friend mentions that this opposition to ideas like independence of the judiciary is new and that when she was taught politics in school growing up, the curriculum claimed that China's government had many of these principles, particularly independence of the judiciary. So my question is, do you think this recent notice will have any particular impact, or is it just another general sign of worsening relationships between China and the West? What do you think, Bill? So I'll I'll take it at a high level. Um, I think that this is just further codifying, if that's the right word, uh, the the general trend. I mean, early on when she she came into power in 2012, the end of 2012, there was this push for this idea of sort of Western constitutionalism, and there was a famous uh, uh, editorial that was written on New Year's in 2013, um, and then very soon after, you saw a, a pretty significant crackdown on lawyers and anyone who was pushing this idea of Western constitutionalism, because the, fun, the fundamental principle is not independent judiciary. The fundamental principle is the party, the Communist Party sits above the judiciary. And so there is, there is rule by law, but the party is above that. So I think the idea is sort of pushing back on separation of three powers, Western constitutionalism, other quote unquote erroneous views. Um, again, this has been uh, this is very much a theme in the Communist Party for a long time. It's been especially emphasized and robust uh, under Xi Jinping. Um, I think more broadly, you know, we're seeing there's there's this concept of the Xi Jinping thought on the rule of law. And this is also part of building that out as a legal system, legal thinking system. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, but it also very much ties in. I think we did a part we talked about this a couple of episodes ago, this idea of 
Chinese-style modernization, which is a very big theme coming out of the 20th Party Congress last fall, um, which is really sort of modernization does not equal westernization. It's basically there is a Chinese approach to modernization. And that included in that modernization and that sort of modernizing governance and building a socialist modern country, which is which is what the goal is, that includes building up their own body of law and legal thought and legal philosophy is, I think, what they're going for. And that's very much not Western. And they talk about like there's a Global Times, which has actually sometimes I find the Global Times in English can be useful, not so much for its screeds, but oftentimes it'll have interesting articles where they talk to various Chinese scholars and Sometimes they really, it's, it's actually useful to read. And so there's an article yesterday about this uh, opinion that came out about the um, legal education. And it was, among all the PRC propaganda, this was the one in English that I found the most useful in the Global Times. Um, and they quote a professor at the party school in Beijing, which is a very important institution for the, for the Communist Party, saying, we need to think about how to establish international relationships with Chinese characteristics instead of simply copying the Western mode. Hmm. And we have encountered problems in the past decades in the legal system with some based on Western teaching mode. So now we need to strengthen it for, to make it suitable for building a fully modern socialist country with Chinese characteristics. Now, that can mean lots of things, but more at, at a sort of fundamental level, again, it's about this sort of intellectual, philosophical decoupling from the West, Yeah, which again is a very consistent and intensifying theme under Xi Jinping especially. It's funny because one of our advantages in America is that there is like a functioning rule of law that makes foreign investors very comfortable doing business in this country. And to the extent that that independence is eroding in China, I mean, it sounds like from your description, it sounds like the erosion of independence of the judiciary has been happening for a while. And the news this week is just that it's more official and explicit now. Is that right? Well, it's never been independent, and 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 yeah. but it is more explicit. I mean, the, the the flip side though is there have been a there's been a lot of progress in the legal system in China. There are a lot of things that are very well codified in law. There are a lot of non politically sensitive issues that um, citizens have a reasonable chance of getting satisfaction in the sort of legal system. Huh. Not a not a hundred percent, but it is it is there, there is and, and actually we can put it in the show notes. There's a an interesting essay in Foreign Affairs by a, um, I think he's a professor of history with a focus on law, John Taisu, who's up at Yale. And he talks about sort of how building the, the legal system is one of the probably the key planks for the Xi and the Communist Party to retain legitimacy. And so it's it's within a within a certain sort of box, the law can be very effectively used by individuals and the the, the society is can be fairly well sort of regulated and ordered. The problem is politically sensitive stuff. Again, this is where the party sits above the judiciary. And I'm simplifying, but generally just go with me on this. The party can decide that this is something that, that is too sensitive. And then, then the whole con- sort of rule of law concept gets skewed. Mm-hmm. And the problem is where does that, where are, the, where are those lines? And the lines can be always shifting. And then the other thing is you have a, a separate system, a sort of a party disciplinary system that applies to party members. But now, as they've added, this National Supervision Commission can also apply to non-party members who have dealings or have issues with state 
organs or party organs. And so that's where I think like Balfan the banker has disappeared now going up on two weeks and does not appear to be sort of a rule of law kind of case. Right. But again, what are you going to do? Yeah, the rule of law, I read the foreign affairs piece you mentioned, and it draws an interesting distinction where the rule of law typically means the laws can hold powerful politicians accountable. And Chinese law obviously doesn't do that. It doesn't impose legal restrictions on party leadership. But it's interesting that you say that the legal restrictions on everyone else are pretty effective at and I understand that the party would want this to be seen as a, a source of legitimacy, but is it in fact seen that way in China these days? Like, are there rights that you can sort of adjudicate in Chinese courts in terms of like property no, rights no, and economics? Yeah, absolutely, around around certain property rights. And again, it it, it it's it's an, it's a big country, a uh, bunch of levels of bureaucracy, very imperfect system. I mean, you, you you're going to probably have different standards of uh, uh, legal processes in Beijing than say somewhere out in uh, rural areas. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it's 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 also really interesting. So one of the examples we go back to the collapse of the dynamic zero COVID regime last fall, and you know we're people are still speculating. Well, what was what finally drove the the leadership to decide they had to basically let it rip and you know could no longer contain it, and among the various things that was going on is especially in, in places like Beijing, where they started to try and lock down, like they'd lock down a community or lock down a set of buildings in a neighborhood. And then you had you had lawyers who were writing on WeChat sort of as sort of a primer for people about what your rights are when your your management, your building management committee says you can't leave your building or you can't leave your apartment. And here's your legal recourse. Mm. And then so you had you had these people increasing did a fair number of protests at the local sort of neighborhood level in Beijing, where the the owners or the residents were protesting against the community management, saying, "What's your legal basis for not letting us leave the building?" And then they'd call the police, and the police would show up, and the the residents would say, "Well, here are the law. So what is the legal basis for these community workers to not allow us to say leave our compound?" And, and the police finally said there is no legal basis. So people started to be able to leave. So it started all falling apart. Wow. And it was yeah. a really interesting case where it was it was a protest. It was not a protest about, you know, oh, let's get rid of the leadership or whatever. It was a we want our uphold, we want our rights upheld and we, we want to protect our rights and be able to exercise our rights. And so and, and they were, as far as we know, none of those people got in trouble. If you go out and protest about other issues, obviously like the the other protests we saw in late November. A bunch of people got arrested over that, so it really depends. Mm-hmm. But it's not a it's it's a, it's not black and white at all. I mean, there's a lot of there has been a pretty significant improvements in some areas around building up the legal infrastructure in China over the last decade plus. That's fascinating. This is why I love doing the podcast because I I came to this with my own biases where. I, in my legal career, had to study Russia and study the Putin regime specifically. And the courts under Putin are a complete joke, frankly. Like, it's all arbitrary and capricious, and it's all about who you know, and you don't really have any rights, um, or sometimes you don't have rights if you don't have any connections. And so I sort of figured that that's what was happening in China as well, just in terms of like another authoritarian regime kind of imposing its will wherever it wants to. But that's really interesting that there's more nuance to the way it works, at least in, until you involve the central party leadership. Or, or I mean, it, it is, 
It's not perfect, but there also has been a pretty significant effort in the political and legal affairs system, which includes the police and the courts and the prosecutors, um, to uh, clean up a lot of corruption mm. and to deal with cases of where, say, somebody did something bad, but then paid off the judge or paid off the prosecutor, or paid off the police. And so someone else got in trouble or they were able to get out of it. I mean, it, it's it's still happening. It is something the party has been very focused on. And I think they have made a lot of improvements. It's not perfect. I mean, I think I mentioned earlier, I mean, it's there's this really I just finally finished it. Episode 39 on Sunday. This, um, you know, it's it's this Chinese series called The Knockout or Kuang Biao in Chinese about mm-hmm. Basically about it. There have been several now where they do sort of the, the central government various participate or approve it because or contribute to it because it's a, also a propaganda show. But it's a real drama about fictionalized. It takes strands from a couple of big cases around China over the last decade about sort of a city that is basically there's a gang, like a gang boss who controls all sorts of things in the city has bought off the police and the courts and local officials. And it's really interesting. And sort of it, so it goes through. And of course, at the end, the party wins, right? You know, yeah. the, the party gets rid of the, they call it the, like getting rid of the black, the, the like there's a getting rid of the black and the eels, basically cracking down on gang crime and organized crime and their protectors. And um, it's really interesting because it's kind of propaganda. One, it's a good show. I actually find it more entertaining than most of the crap on Netflix. And it's on, <laughs> it's on YouTube. I think it's, I'm not sure if all of them are on YouTube for free, but they are subtitled. The subtitles are so-so, but you know, you can get the gist. That's um, interesting. I was going to ask whether there were subtitles because I saw you mention it in the newsletter and I, I would love to check it out, but I would be completely lost without even the mediocre subtitles. So I pay like nine, I think it's nine bucks a month for the ICE subscription on YouTube so that I can watch a lot of Chinese shows uh, on YouTube. They're faster than trying to like go through the firewall. But Mm -hmm. um, the English subtitles on that were so-so. They're better than nothing. Okay. Um, uh, But anyway, but my point, my point, sorry, we're rambling a little bit, but my point is, is that this is actually something that the party is very much one proud of the progress they've made Two really has been trying to make changes again within a box, not, if you go out there and do something to challenge Xi Jinping or the party, that's a different bets are off. system approach that you're going to get than if you have an issue over property rights or some sort of a civil dispute. And again, oversimplifying, you're going to have a different experience in, say, a city like Beijing or Shanghai than you're going to have in a county seat mm-hmm. just because. But, you know, that's how it works in most countries. So is the show equivalent to like law and order, like a, a legal procedural like that? Broadly speaking, it just basically tracks this arc of 20 plus years of this one clean cop and this one guy who starts out as a fishmonger and then becomes like the big boss. Okay. And sort of all the different connections they have and the different crimes they commit and the people who get killed and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. Um, All right. Well, it's a little, it, it has, I mean, it has its cheesy moments, but, um, <laughs> but it's definitely, it's, it's an entertaining show. Look, I mean, you don't have to convince me. I've watched a lot of really bad television <laughs> on Netflix, so I'll check it out um, to keep it moving. There were more stories about the COVID origins this week, and we have this question from Twin. He says, it's expected that the Republican-controlled House will start an investigation into the origins of COVID. Unless it becomes insanely political, this could get messy for China. Having watched, quote, in the same breath by Nanfu Wang, 
There is boatloads of verifiable public data on cover-up within China for the first 45 to 60 days of COVID. If the U.S. government highlights this evidence, what could a CCP response look like? Um, And this is a question I've wondered about as well, because I think investigations will continue in the United States. And back in 2020, I mean, China imposed all sorts of sanctions on Australia after the Australian PM said there should be an inquiry. Um, what are your thoughts on potential fallout as the committee starts to explore this in, in more depth? So a couple of things. We should, we'll put a link to the podcast where we talked about this in depth a couple months right, ago and how much we hate talking about this topic. Um, so I think the news that moved, sort of put this back in focus in the last couple of days was the Wall Street Journal broke a story that the Department of Energy um, had shifted its view on the possible origins of COVID to going from some sort of a natural origin to a lab leak. But they did so with, what's, with what they said was low confidence, which is basically like, kind of looks like that's what it is, but we don't really have any hard evidence. Right. Um, and and there are, I think, I forget the exact number, there's 17 or 19 different intelligence agencies, and they don't all agree. But of course, it makes huge news for a lot of reasons. And it's become, you know, a huge, huge in here. We always talk about the censorship and, and, and sort of why, you know, two years ago, three years ago, you mentioned that it was might not be natural. And, you know, it was all the like, you know, you're racist and blah, blah. blah and it was that was exacerbated by, I think, the language coming out of uh, coming from President Trump specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't appear to move the needle in terms of actually what, what we or the U.S. government knows. And like the U.S. National Security Advisor over the weekend, I think, was asked about this and basically said the intelligence community does not have consensus um, just, just because of the. And, and I will say that. So there is a new congressional committee in the House that is I forget the exact name of it, but it's it's tasked with investigating both the U.S. response to the pandemic and origin. So this was going to be front and center in Congress regardless. Yep. Um, now, of course, this, you know, has created quite the media firestorm in the last 36, 48 hours. Um, it, it was uh, uh, I. I Anyway, I mean, I watched the Tucker Carlson monologue last night, which is all about COVID in China, and it is a um, it's if if where he's what he's talking about is where bits of Congress or people are headed on this. It's going to be a rough few months. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's just another reason to think that the U.S.-China relations are really headed for a much more difficult time. I mean, as as this questioner pointed out, I mean, there's again, I have no idea about the origin. I don't imagine any of our listeners know with any certainty. Um, there certainly are reasonable people who argue on both sides. There are unreasonable people too, but there are reasonable people who argue on both sides of it. Yep. Um, there's no question that it was made worse at the beginning by the cover-up in Wuhan. Um, there's absolutely no question that the world and China and the world lost a bunch of time because the local officials covered it up. Um, beyond that, we don't know. We don't know. Was it just the local guys? Was it that of Beijing? We, we, we don't know. But I do think that you know, in terms of what the reaction will be, you know, you've already got the the whole sort of concept that oh, actually, it, the U.S. created it. It came from Fort Detrick, um, you know, the, the oh, military God, lab yeah. in the U.S., which which came out in 2000 and it keeps coming back and has been back on the sort of on the Chinese side in the last um, uh, last couple of weeks anyway. And I think you'll see a lot more of that. But it also means that. Uh, you know, there was no real independent investigation in China. The WHO sent a group in two years ago, but it was not an investigation. And, um, you know, again, I think we talked about that a podcast a few episodes ago. You know, what really shifted or gave a lot more permission around the, the question of whether or not it, 
it actually was some sort of a lab accident or a lab leak was actually after the WHO team went into China, had a press con- came out, had a press conference, and Director General Tedros, Director General of the WHO Tedros is the one who basically said all options are on the table, which mm-hmm. meant including the lab leak. And that made the Chinese crazy, but they had a hard time attacking the head of WHO because they'd been loving him before. Um, so I think the challenge will be going back to the question and talking about Capitol Hill specifically is how to have a fact-based, rational discussion about this, given how angry people are on both sides, on every side, about what happened. Right. And I don't think that's going to be possible. So I think that's going to lead to a pretty ugly few months. There's a lot of anger on both sides related to domestic issues that have nothing to do with China. And I hope China yes. understands that. It's that Doesn't sure. Matter. Yeah. I mean, it won't matter in China's eyes whatsoever, but it's just interesting as I think about why the investigation is important to pursue. It, it would have huge consequences on the future of gain of function research. If we found that this was created in a lab or leaked from a lab. And then it, you mentioned like the censorship. It was bizarre that you couldn't really discuss this in the mainstream media for like a year or two. Um, And it's clearly plausible, as the WHO head said. Again, he didn't say it was likely, but he just said you can't rule it out. And and, and again, the the debate is around like it's impossible versus like, well, we just don't know. No, very few people want to just say we don't know. Yeah, I think the, the issue is it was treated as like, real crackpot stuff when there's all sorts of circumstantial evidence that renders it reasonable to ask the question. And I guess related to what Twin is thinking here, if the U.S. is asking the question or if this committee synthesizes a lot of the evidence on the Chinese side in terms of what was done and what looked like a cover-up and then presents that to the American public, Do you have any idea what the response could look like? Because you mentioned like doing this in a rational, fact-based way. I bet even if the U.S. government did it in a rational, fact-based way, the response would be irrational on the PRC side. So I'm just curious if we have any idea what what their response might look like. I would not be surprised to see a um, a, a sort of a new ramping up of propaganda efforts globally uh, in multiple languages to blame the U S for the pandemic. Mm. Um, and you know, we had some of that earlier. It, it seems to have died down a bit. I would not be surprised to see that come back in a much bigger way. Um, ironically, of course, it primarily prosecuted over U S social media platforms like YouTube and Facebook and Twitter. Um, I, I will say that again, we've talked about this and I hate talking about this and I don't, I don't know the answer. I will say that, you know, obviously it happened during the Trump administration. So there was a lot of focus from the intelligence community, the Trump administration on origins. Um, a lot of resources were devoted to finding the source, mm-hmm. finding the origin and they didn't find it. And so three years on three plus years on, I think it's increasingly unlikely if if it's if it were not a natural thing. I think it's increasingly unlikely we'll ever know. And if it's a nat- if it was some sort, if it was as a lot of people suggest, natural origin, we may never know. I think with SARS, it took like seven years to figure out where it came from. Yeah. So it, so I think that it's unlikely that this panel is going to discover some new magical evidence that sort of suddenly is dispositive and says, okay, this is where it came from. 
I think we have to be careful. We talked about this on that previous podcast. There was that Senate report, minority Senate report that then got written up by ProPublica, where it was like it was I mean, the, the, the stuff they were using, specifically the guy who like suddenly had the magic decoder ring for how the Communist Party talked. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is bullshit. Excuse my listener. Excuse my French. Um, that I hope. If they're going to push on this, then they, they better have a lot more than that because that was not constructive. Yeah, exactly. And it is important to do this in a way that's credible, at least to the American public, and furthers the conversation as opposed to devolving into the same sort of partisan back and forth. Yeah. But I think on the Chinese side, I mean, what, again, it depends where the relationship is. I mean, wh- what can they do? Can they sanction some congressmen who are talking about it? I mean, do they, they have been reticent to, you know, after Australia pushed for, uh, I think it was the prime minister at the time was Morrison pushed mm-hmm. for this independent inquiry. That was one, if not the primary trigger for it looked like a sort of putting Australia in the deep freeze on a bunch of trade related issues. Although now it's thawing. The Chinese are, well, we what? actually want to buy Australian coal. So the question though is they, they have been reticent to do that to the US because they'll quickly do it to U.S. allies, smaller countries, mm-hmm. they, they have really av- tried to avoid going straight up head to head with the U.S. on a lot of these issues. And given the economic situation, given how they're really focused on getting and keeping foreign investors in China and foreign businesses in China, binding more supply chains to the PRC, unless the relationship has completely gone through the floor, I'd be surprised if they do anything too far in terms of penalizing like U.S. companies or U.S. individuals. Yeah, uh, that's why I'm curious to see how they'll respond, because even Australia didn't suffer as much as expected because of the sanctions. And China was still really dependent on the iron ore in Australia and on the American side. There's still so much symbiosis between our economy and China's yeah. economy that you risk cutting off your nose to spite your face if you're aggressively sanctioning the, yeah. the U.S. and furthering which the decoupling. Is, which is why, you know, the, the Chinese hate all the sanctions the U.S. has imposed on Chinese companies, individuals and some officials. And yet their response has basically been, I mean, they're nothing so far. Mm-hmm. They, they have some sanctions, but nobody has no impact on people. Because they just don't have the, it, it's still a very, in some areas, it's still an extremely unbalanced relationship. Yep. Well, and we also got this report from the Washington Post on Monday. The committee will also look at the troubled and sometimes troubling relationship between corporate America and China. Especially- oh, that's the that's the Gallagher Commission. That's the select, a that, different that's different committee. than the... COVID commission. Yeah. Yes. And especially instances in which big firms, Hollywood or the NBA have sometimes bent over backward to accommodate Beijing. Gallagher said his panel is going to be calling certain businesses, certain industries to either testify before or talk to behind closed doors, the committee and explain what the trade-offs are doing to business in China. Um, Do you have thoughts on, on that proposed course of action from the China Select Committee? Um, no, I, th- I think it's totally legitimate. You know, I think that I think it, it's it's legitimate to try and understand more about what some of these big companies and big trade organizations are doing and what they're thinking about China. You know, I, I, I don't think it, um, you know, I, I mean, if 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 this one of the goals of this commission is to sort of understand all the different drivers and levers in the U.S.-China relationship, you can't do that without having a very, some very serious conversations with the U.S., with the business community. Yeah, Hollywood in particular would be interesting to me because we talked about 
the China film industry a couple weeks ago. And there, that evolution is, is super interesting in its own right. But there's sort of an asymmetry because there's certain Chinese films that are pretty anti-Western and sort of propaganda-like. And then I don't think there's been like a Chinese villain in a movie in like 25 years or for like most of my life. I, I have not seen China as like a bad guy in Hollywood movies. And I think that's a reflection of all these studios trying to sort of protect that market and not upset the the party leadership. Yeah, it is true. It's documented. And, you know, there was starting to shift away over the last three years is the box office, especially for the Hollywood films, really dropped off in China. But now the Chinese are smart. They've, you know, Avatar had a big run. They've mm. approved other Marvel movies. They're sort of, they're dangling the big, honey soaked carrot in front of Hollywood again. And, you know, so I think very quickly they'll start jumping back to like, no, 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 we're going to go sort of back to the way it was. Yeah. And so, and, and I think it's, it's, um, yeah, it, again, it's some of the stuff is pretty gross. Right. And it, and it does lead to self-censorship here. I mean, I living, mm-hmm. living through the NBA stuff a couple years ago with Daryl Morey and LeBron and everything else. Like it's, it's shocking the degree to which the entire league fell in line and didn't say a word because there's so much money at stake. So, um, mm-hmm. it definitely they seems did, like they dynamics. did close their, their like camp in Xinjiang, I think. Like their, um, <laughs> no, finally. Their, like, yes. Basketball camp, not re-education, the basketball camp in Xinjiang. Yeah. Um, yep. And sorry. I mean, but it, no, but I mean, it took a while. It, it, it was, yeah. I mean, again, the NBA, what do you do? Right. And I think it was LeBron or somebody said it or something with the Maury thing. I mean, basically, you know, if you're a player, do you want to be the asshole who like loses all your teammates money? Because mm-hmm. again, they all like their salary, it goes up and down based on revenue. And if they lose China revenue, that means that all the players, basically their salaries can go down. Right. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so, so if you speak out, you know, you can say, yeah, I have to take a stand, but you're going to hurt a whole bunch of your friends, your teammates, other players too. Right. And and so it's sort of collectively, there's a lot of pressure too to be like, dude, keep your mouth shut. Cause this is a lot of money at stake. Totally. I mean, it was eye opening how quickly the whole league fell into lockstep on that yeah. front. So, um, and it, it it's true across a bunch of different industries where China's money has become sort of like a, a fact of life that just removing it is like removing a Jenga block and suddenly everything starts to feel like it's coming down and um, that it presents its own challenges because you end up just self-censoring in perpetuity. But I look forward to any sort of discovery that committee could take on those dynamics, like emails or whatever. It'd be very interesting to see what certain business leaders have said about all of this. To keep it moving, though, and going back to China, Stephen asks, is there any update on Bao Fan? Last week, the Financial Times reported that Bao was in the process of setting up a family office in Singapore last year, moving his assets from Hong Kong to Singapore is easier than trying to extract those in the PRC. Might he have gotten caught trying to fiddle with his PRC assets? What do you think, Bill? What What's the latest in this situation? So the latest is the company put out, a, the China Renaissance, which trades publicly in Hong Kong, put out a statement basically saying that they had, um, they had learned that he was cooperating in an investigation. No other details. Um, and And so in terms of, again, what, what the problem is, we've the, the best information we've had is from Taishin, the Chinese business outlet, um, that it's connected to 
uh, someone he hired who was at a state owned bank before. Mm-hmm. Um, no indication has anything to do with him, sort of what he did with his money. I mean, China Renaissance is Hong Kong listed. A lot of his wealth would have been outside of, you know, would have been in Hong Kong anyway. Theoretically, Hong Kong is, you know, no capital control. So it shouldn't be a problem to move money from Hong Kong to another country. So I think it's unlikely that that's the reason, but we, we just, again, we don't know. Yeah. Well, and for anyone who's listening and didn't listen last week, because I think this episode's going to be free, Bao's abrupt disappearance, this is from Bloomberg, has unnerved China's business elite and fan speculation. The nation's finance industry is set to face increased scrutiny. And he disappeared two weeks ago. It's still pretty unclear what happened. There was some focus on the choice of words in terms of um, him cooperating with an investigation as opposed to assisting an investigation. Yeah, and that was was sort of splitting hairs. It's, It's sort of a... It, it it's okay. It basically means the same thing. Okay. One thing I'll say is there is no question that there is a broader cleanup of the financial sector underway. The um, the Central Commission for Discipline and Inspection, which is the party body that is sort of the ideological and anti-corruption enforcer, has said that. And so you're, you've seen increasing number of cases, investigations in the financial sector. The um, This week, just today, concluded the... Um, or it was yesterday that concluded the second second plenum of the of the twentieth party congress, and we don't know exactly what the details are yet, but there's going to be some pretty significant um, sort of restructuring of, of parts of the government, and it looks like there's going to be a new commission set up to oversee the entire financial system. And one of the one of the reasons to do that, there are a bunch of reasons. One of the reasons may to may be that um, it's part of a sort of sits on top of a broader cleanup and helps give it more stability. That sort of so so whether or not Balfan is caught up in that, we don't know. But there is no question that there's there will be more corruption cases in the financial sector, given what the party is signaling. Okay, and we talk about legitimacy. Are the corruption investigations rooting out legitimate corruption? Like how how black and white are the laws? So here's a question to to my American listeners: How would you feel if there were a corruption investigation on Wall Street? Uh, good. So there you go. So, so (laughs) (laughs) this would, this is one of those things that would have a huge amount of popular support if they went and took out a whole bunch of corrupt bankers. Okay. It just would, you know, again, did they get the corrupt ones? Did they get the unlucky ones? Did they get the ones who pissed somebody off? You never know. Well, However, and, and I wonder how how explicit and black and white the laws are in terms of what's allowed or not allowed on the corruption. Oh, they're pretty front. explicit around okay. around behavior. Some of these, I mean, there's, um, and, and there, you know, the financial system has a lot of problems around debt, around real estate, around local government debt. There's, you know, and a lot of the problems you know, are related to corruption. Mm-hmm. This is, it's all, it's all glommed up together. And so ex- figuring out how you pull that apart has pushes a lot more risk out into the system. And I think that's why, I mean, it's a very long process, but I do think that this year people should not be surprised to see some pretty high profile corruption investigations, downfalls that are related or in the financial sector and the financial system. Right. And last week we talked about Bao and said that some of what he was doing would have been fine when he came up. And now it like the landscape is just different under Xi. Does that still hold? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And we just don't know exactly what this yeah. investigation centers on. So it's hard yeah, to comment. No idea. Yeah. Um, all part of that opacity that we know and love. Uh, all right. To keep <laughs> it moving, Shinya says, I'm curious about Bill's view on e-renminbi and also the growing importance of renminbi for international trade. It seems ERMB is failing to attract interest from the locals, but can it be extended? What do you think, Bill? So no, I think that this is the digital, the digital yuan, the digital CNY, or the you know, which is the Chinese Central Bank is pushing out. Um, I think that uh, we will see increasing adoption inside China. I mean, you already have, um, you know, China's very far along in terms of digital payments. Uh, you know, pioneered by Alipay and then WeChat and you know Tencent Pay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cash is pretty rare in a lot of ways now, and I think that. Um, uh, the central. Th- this will continue to be to be gain adoption. Will continue to be pushed out. Um, I, I don't think we should underestimate how big it's going to be inside China. Um, so far, it is not really an international thing. Um, and you know, on the on the sort of inter- internationalization of the renminbi, it's it's a big goal of China to de-dollarize to the extent possible. Right. Um, there are lots of challenges with doing that. They they have made slow progress in terms of increasing uh, uses of the renminbi. I think that has changed a little bit over the last year with the, uh, all the sanctions on Russia. And, you know, now so much of the PRC Russia trade is in, yet, is in renminbi rubles sort of off the dollar system because of all the sanctions. And so, again, this is where I think the U.S. being very, um, I don't want to say promiscuous, but being very aggressive or broad in its use of sanctions um, certainly potentially will drive a faster internationalization of the renminbi in parts of the world. Right. Because more and more people want to get off the sort of get away from the U.S. ability to hurt them using the the global financial system of which the U.S. dominates. Yeah, it makes sense that other countries would want to insulate themselves from that particular leverage point. Um, so in terms of the digital currency in the in China, is that basically China's equivalent of Bitcoin or is it something different? I know it's, no, no, it's just it's issued. just basically it's just it's just backed by the PBOC. It's just a, it's just a renminbi, but it's digital. It's not a new currency. It's just a new form of the renminbi. All right. Well, we have a related question from John. He says, after China begins reissuing travel visas. To what extent do you think international tourists will return in the next one to two years? While it won't be pre-2019 pre levels for a while, I wonder if it will be stronger initially than we might guess. And then also, as COVID locked in many public entities' reliance on mobile platforms for digital surveillance, it also locked in stronger habits for conducting all of one's affairs via mobile app. For example, China Railways no longer requires you to print off a ticket. You can use the mobile app QR code or your passport at a scanner. How do you think foreigners with no Chinese language ability will be able to function in a payment and app ecosystem that's closed off from most foreign payment networks and essentially forces them to download WeChat slash Alipay? Will this be a hindrance for tourism, especially if both platforms remain cumbersome for those without a Chinese mobile phone number and bank account. Do you have thoughts, Bill? Um, well, they, I mean, they've figured out ways to do it for the Olympics. 
Um, and so I think that it's not, it's, it is a bit more cumbersome, but um, I think it'll be workable. The broader question really is tourism is not going to pick up until there are more cheaper flights into China. Sorry if you hear Tashi. He's, he's upset about um, the talk of travel. He doesn't like it when I leave the house. So he's, he's worried. Um, it's great to have our third host. He always makes his appearance around minute like 55. It's the, terrific. Yes. He's like, you're talking too long and there's a squirrel. <laughs> yeah. Coming up on an hour, you know, time to tighten it up. Uh, say your goodbyes. Um, yeah. Well, I, what interests me is it, it, it is, um, it's difficult if you can't sign up for some of these payment systems without yeah. Chinese bank accounts or phone numbers or a national ID card. And it makes sense that China would see the benefit of going digital, uh, but it sort of leaves outsiders in the lurch unless they come up with some sort of solution here. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a, you know, there were workarounds, you know, there were foreigners during the, the worst of the COVID restrictions. And, you know, the, it's it's just like, I think it's not going to be super easy, but it's also not insurmountable. If you want to go to China, you should go, you'll figure it out. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think that, I think once sort of flights normalize, prices normalize, the visa situation normalizes, I, I do think a lot of people will visit China. I mean, it's, why not? It's a great place to visit. I would love, yeah. I yeah, mean, a lot of, a lot of stuff. Although you never know what list you're on now. I mean, we're on Elon's list. You might got another <laughs> list too because of this podcast. You it, might be ruined, man. Sorry. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta watch my step whenever <laughs> I make it over there for the Chinese Grand Prix. Uh, I got Ben Thompson writing about Formula One this week. A big victory for me. Uh, final question. Uh, <laughs> so right before we came on, another thing that you tweeted was about Lee Shi not hiding his gray hair in a public appearance. And it reminded me, I, I've just wondered, like, have we ever gotten a good answer as to why she broke with the tradition of party leaders dyeing their hair black, which was a tradition I was not familiar with until I started doing this podcast with you. But do we know why she broke the mold? No, no, we don't. Interesting. Um, yeah, I know Lee Shi is the number seven on the standing committee. He's in charge of the discipline, the, the, the sort of discipline corruption apparatus. And there's just a picture he's got his hair is nice hair he's got nice sort of gray you know sort of rings on his head it's like it's like okay he looks like a normal you know 60-ish politician it's a classy older man look and even she the streaks of gray not bad um so yeah i i I found a good 2019 new york times article about it so i'll put that in the show notes it's just sort of a a quirk of the she tenure that is um less heavy than so many other quirks of the she tenure so i appreciate the (laughs) hair deviation and um on that note i think it's time for tashi to go chase some squirrels this has been fun bill and again if anyone knows whether we're being shadow banned anyone at twitter hq we'd love to hear from you email at sharpchina.fm send your questions send your comments and uh we'll keep this rolling next week Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, everybody.